It's, um, it's very, very good to be back with you guys. Um, I'm highly tempted to just gush on um, just the joy it, it's, it, it brings to Julie and I to worship with you and to the, the time that we spent already this weekend. Uh, Julie last night at the Bible study and me this morning and, and yesterday afternoon with some of you. And I mean, even on the ride over here, we were just talking about just just the excitement of that that we get to be here and um, I could just gush for the next 45 minutes uh, about our love for Grace and Truth Bible Church um, but I want to discipline myself um, and really continue in that vein that, that we've been led to in worship and um, do so by looking at Ephesians 5 and so let's let's go to the, the Lord in prayer and we'll look at that passage together. Father, those, those words that you are more than enough is, is so true and is, is the experience of us. And, uh, and so we can, we can sing them uh, according to the Spirit. It's been our experience and it's certainly the conviction that we hold to as, as we've learned from your word and uh, I, I ask for help. I feel all the more my inadequacies in, in teaching this, this section of Scripture. It is, it is so precious to me in how it's shaped me uh, recently, but in, in times past, how it's guided me in life. And it, it, uh, I just I realize my inadequacy to really bring it fully to light. And so I ask for help. Spirit, that you would give insight that is beyond my words, that you would work in spite of me and alongside me to make our time useful uh, for the good of your body. Lord, you love these people, grace and truth, far more than I do. You know their needs and and you know uh, what they need to hear today. And I pray that you would work through me to satisfy your church and to give wisdom, and to impart life. And so help me now as we look at Ephesians 5. Help us as we look at Ephesians 5, 15 to 21. We ask this in your name. Amen. This is Ephesians 5, 15. I'll read the passage first. Paul writes, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I've entitled the message, Living Wisely, and uh, for an obvious reason, it's, it's really the essence of that first verse, look carefully how you walk, and not as unwise, but as wise. And there are a lot of other commands in this section, but really, they stem from the one command to walk wisely, to live wisely. And 
structurally speaking, if you're just looking at the grammar, there's really two imperatives, two commands, and that's walk wisely in verse 15, and in verse 18, it's be filled with the Spirit. But really, these are two commands that are actually saying the same thing, just two ways of saying um, the command to walk wisely. To be filled with the Spirit is to be wise, and, to, and if you're filled with the Spirit, you'll make wise decisions, and to walk in the Spirit is to walk wisely. So the whole of what we want to look at today is really an explanation of what it means to live a wise Christian life, what it means to be a wise Christian. Primarily at those two main commands, live wisely and be filled with the Spirit, but again, essentially they're saying the same thing. The way to live wisely is to be filled with the Spirit, and Paul will get into what that looks like in in our life. And so he begins first by by stating um, walk, not as unwise, but as wise, and that that term walk we, has come up a number of time in the book, times in the book of Ephesians. It's uh, commonly found with the conjunction therefore. It was seen in verse, chapter 4, verse 1, where believers were called to walk in unity. It's also seen uh, in 417, where we're called to walk in holiness in contrast to Gentiles, also called to walk in love, and here it's to walk in wisdom. And in each of these places, it's, it's really an, a, a call to live in these ways, live in unity, live in holiness, live in wisdom. And in particular, we're exhorted here to walk wisely in the power of the Spirit. As Paul says, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. The term he uses as he describes this walk or this life is to walk carefully or um, accurately which is really how the term is used in other parts of Scripture. Paul, in, in the book of Acts, or that, that Luke wrote, Paul, uh, Luke describes Paul giving this, this speech, and Paul uses that term in this speech to describe his life before he was a Christian. He says this in Acts 26.5, I have lived as a member of the strictest party of our religion. Strictest is, how, is that same word. To walk strictly, you could say, in Acts 18.25, it describes Apollos that he taught accurately the facts about Jesus. So it means to be precise, to be careful or accurate. And I personally like the King James Version wording, which is to walk circumspectly, which means to, to walk in such a way that you're, you're aware of your surroundings, uh, circumference, you know, you see around and speckly, the, the, to see, so you're you see around, you're, what you, you're aware of what's going on around you. Like a cat that walks along a thin fence rail with one paw and the other. There's purposefulness and thought with every step. Another illustration that came to mind was like Indiana Jones in The Last Crusade where he's supposed to spell out the words Jehovah in order to get the grail and he makes one bad step and he almost dies and he saves himself somehow. I don't remember, it's been a while, but... He's, he's careful to step on the right stones. Or another vision that comes to mind is uh, the crossing of a stream um, over stepping stones. So there's this stream that's rolling by and you've got to cross it so you step on the right stones. If a stone has moss or it's somewhat submerged or it's lying on other loose stones, it's risky, it's dangerous if you step there. And so you want to make sh- careful with each step that you take. And right now, many there's a lot of... Uh, May weddings taking place uh, in the area because May is beautiful, typically. 
It's kind of been off and on today. But it's usually beautiful weather in Oregon. And imagine that right now there's a wedding that's taking place just west of here. And there's a bride who is, um, as part of her wedding entrance, is going to cross a trickling brook in order to meet her groom. And it just so happens that this babbling brook is downstream of the Tillamook Dairy Farm. And as a consequence, the water is a bit tainted and has a brownish hue. And so to cross, she has to step on these stones very carefully to avoid slipping and soiling her dress in the brown, tainted water. And every step she takes is going to be carefully examined, if she's wise. So despite her excitement, her urgency to want to cross this stream to meet her groom, she needs to take the steps considering, is it worth rushing it in order to show up with a white dress soaked in brown water on my, uh, when I meet the groom at the altar? And likewise, we also need to be careful with the opportunities and decisions that we have in life, to make careful decisions because we don't want to tarnish our life with bad decisions. You have to ask yourself, is it worth it? And if getting soiled isn't that big of a deal, have at it. But if your goal is to keep pure, and it is, as we see in First Peter, be holy as I am holy, if your goal is to keep pure, you're going to do everything you can to avoid getting messy. I think most of us are, tend to be like students in a marching band on the 4th of July parade. We're going to have one here shortly. I played trumpet in high school, and often we would have to travel behind the uh, future farmers of America or people riding on horses. And the goal of a person in a marching band is to keep in step with everybody else around you. And I usually had my pretty white band shoes stained brown by the end of the parade because I didn't didn't care so much about what I'm going to walk through because my goal was to keep in step with everybody else. But, obviously, if I was more worried about the shoes, I wouldn't be worried about what's going on around me conforming with the herd, so to speak. I'd be trying to walk carefully to avoid the filth in my way. Our choices likewise, are reflective of what we value. We make choices what to avoid, what to conform to, based upon what we value. And so is how we would define wisdom. The truly wise Christian is one whose decisions reflect the priorities and decisions of Christ. They may be wise, that person may be wise in a worldly sense because they keep in step with the world around them and so they're able to earn the applause and the admiration of unbelievers. But biblical wisdom is reflective of biblical priorities. So what the world might consider as wise may not be in line with what the Bible would consider wise. And so when we ask, is it a wise decision, that can be a very tricky thing to ask. You also have to ask, well, what, how are you defining wisdom in what sense? Because if your goal is a worldly goal, the wise thing is to do what you can to meet that goal. But obviously, if your goal is to be like Christ and to have others be like Christ around you, your goals and decisions are going to be 
in line with that aim. If Christ is our example, we will reflect his priorities in our choices. Consider, what did, what did the world think of when they saw a Jewish man hanging upon a cross like a condemned criminal? They think, ah, oh, there's a wise man. Well, what about the church? Think, what did Peter think when Christ was taken away? It wasn't his expectation. What did Judas think? Even what did Paul think? See, often what we, the Bible would consider a wise decision isn't in line with what others would expect. Consider what Isaiah, how Isaiah describes our Savior in Isaiah 53. He says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we have him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. From everybody else's perspective, this man did not look wise. It was, it was, uh, the, the words aren't even coming to me, it, it, it was horrific. And yet, it was the greatest act in the history of the universe. It'll be the, 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 the focus of praise for eternity. It was the act of wisdom, you could say. And so Paul says, walk not as unwise, but as wise. And wise in light of what Christ would prioritize. And that word wisdom, it's a well-known word, sophos, where we get the word philosophy, um, or sophist, sophomore, which means wisdom, and uh, so, some commentators have defined it as true insight into known facts or skill in the management of def- affairs. It's, it's people who can utilize their knowledge in order to make the best choices. So people have facts, but not everybody has all the facts they need for a given situation. And the wise person, based upon the facts they do know, know how to make the right choice. So biblically speaking... It's the ability to discern God's will. And this is confirmed in verse 17, which is the next, uh, in two verses later. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. The wise person is able to understand God's will, even though God's will isn't always made explicit for every situation. And so the wise person reads God's words, and they understand his desires, his priorities, his plans, and they get a sense of what is it that God would want me to do, even if God hasn't made it explicit for that situation. They have the facts, and now based upon the facts, they make the decision. Employees, soldiers, politicians, everybody in society does the same thing. We don't always have everything we need to, to make a decision, but the wise person, based upon what they do know, commits. See, a wise husband, for instance doesn't need a list of okay actions to be approved by his wife in order to figure out what she wants. 
See, most it would readily know if their wife is going to be pleased or excited or disappointed in an action because they know her. They know her priorities, her plans, her desires. They've gathered enough information just by listening and spending time with her, observing her. And often they've learned the hard way by making the wrong decision, but they learn. It's the foolish husband who would say, how was I supposed to know that choosing to play poker with my buddies on our anniversary night was going to be something that upset you. You never told me that. You never made it explicit. You've let me go play poker before. But often this is how people rationalize their decisions before God. How was I supposed to know that I shouldn't date an unbeliever? Yeah, I know. Okay, the Bible says things about not marrying an unbeliever, but dating isn't marriage. Or how was I supposed to know that that skirt was inappropriate? The Bible doesn't say anything about skirt lengths. And so they're looking for something explicit that if they just read the scripture, they could see and make a decision that would be more wise. The Bible doesn't give a lot of explicit commands. And especially in the New Testament, and for good reason. Because our decisions should be reflective of the gospel, the fact that we've been freed from sin. And not, not reflective of the law. And so it's important to define wisdom as that which reflects God's will because wisdom is defined by one's priorities and aims. It's not wise for a person who's trying to lose weight to get a job at Krispy Kremes. It's not wise for an Olympic athlete to get pregnant if their goal is to win a gold medal. It's also not wise for a presidential candidate to proclaim to be a fundamentalist Christian if he wants to get elected. Because if his aim is this, the chances, the chances of achieving that by doing such and such are going to be thwarted. But obviously we can look at all the, you know, getting a job at Krispy Kremes, earning a gold medal, be, being a fundamentalist Christian, none of those are, are wrong in and of themselves. The wisdom is defined on what's your aim. So wisdom can be a tricky word. You can seek to do something for Christ, and people will say, but is that wise? Is that a wise decision? And you have to ask them, well, define your terms. Wise in what sense? Wise is in safe, secure, peaceful, pleasant, profitable. How would this paradigm fit the cross? Safe, secure, peaceful. It was profitable. It was profitable, but not in a monetary sense. Or are you speaking of wise as in, I know my God will be pleased based upon what the Bible says? John Payton was a missionary to the New Hebrides, and he and his wife set sail in 1858 to go to a, an island of cannibals. And 230 years before, two other London missionaries had made a first attempt to bring the gospel to these people. And right as they reached the shore, they were clubbed to death and then eaten inside of the ship that had just dropped them off. And so when Peyton decided to leave London to bring the gospel to these unreached peoples, his decision didn't come without criticism. On one account, before leaving, a respected elder chided the couple 
You will be eaten by cannibals if you go. To which Peyton responds, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or eaten by worms. Two different views of what is wise there. Another moving one is Richard Vermbrand, who was a pastor in communist Romania. In 1945, Romanian communists seized power and a million invited Russian troops started pouring into the country and they started to make a lot of influence on both politics and religion. In one year, there was a congress of cults, so to, which is what it was called, but basically a, a meeting of religious leaders that the communist uh, government had established. And so many of these religious leaders came forward and praised communism and swore loyalty to the new regime. And Richard and his wife were sitting in the audience as these fellow pastors were getting up and swearing loyalty to their new communist leader and to the communist party and stand in shock and don't know what to do. And Sabina, his wife, leans over and says, Richard, stand up and wash away this shame from the face of Christ. And Richard turned to her and said, if I do so, you lose your husband. And she replied, I don't wish to have a coward as a husband. And so he did. He stood up and declared to the 4,000 delegates whose speeches were broadcast to the whole nation that their duty is to glorify God and Christ alone. And the result was years of torture and imprisonment. For both of them. And there they established the, the, the ministry known as Voice of the Martyrs. Uh, his account, his whole story can be read in Tortured for Christ, the famous book that he wrote. And any, easily he could have rationalized that and said, but Sabina is that wise. Again, it depends on how are you defining wisdom? Wisdom for what? What's our goal? And, and being a good wife, she knew what it was. It's to wash away the shame from the face of Christ. So let me ask you, was Peyton and Vermbrand wise? Was Paul wise? Was Christ wise? Verse 16 clarifies how to walk wisely then to make the best use of the time because the days are evil. We live wisely when we make the best use of our time. Because the days are evil. The word time is kairos, and it speaks of a particular moment, not just time in general, but uh, you could think of it as an opportunity. Make the most of what you've been given. Make the most of this opportunity in life. And when he says make the best use of, literally that phrase actually is buy back purchase, ransom, like a slave's freedom, buy back the time. That's literally what it means. This phrase is used one time in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, in Daniel 2.8. And in that verse, it says, the king answered and said to uh, these magicians, 
He says, I know with certainty that you're trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. The king had proclaimed that if you can't tell me what my dream was about, you're dead. And so these magicians were giving all these excuses or, or reinterpretation, and it wasn't working. And he says, I can tell you're trying to buy back your time. And so the idea is, use your time similarly to one whose life is on the line. Or you could th- think of it as, take full advantage of the life that God has given you. Knowing that it's limited. Take full advantage of particular opportunities, but also as your life in general in the massive decisions, and in the mundane. To be wise is to consider that you get one shot at this. You have one life. Make the most of it. Knowing the days are evil. This gives the reason for why we need to make the most of our time. And it seems best to understand this phrase in light of Ephesians 2.2, where Paul says, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We live in an age, in an era, where Satan's power um, dominates. Christ is authoritative over that. Satan's on, Satan's on a short leash, but he's still driving the, the direction of this world. It speaks to the reality that we're in a spiritual war. A real spiritual war. It's not just some fantastic story there are really demons there are there is a real satan who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour you and the wise person recognizes the reality of that spiritual war and as christians we're insurgents of the king and we're seeking to unhinge the grip of control that this usurping king has over this world. We know that our king is coming. We know that he's on his way. We know that he's going to establish his kingdom on the earth, and he's already begun that work. And we know he will finally arrive when our job is accomplished. We see that from Matthew twenty four fourteen, where Jesus um, proclaims to his disciples, and he says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Jesus is waiting for that gospel to be proclaimed to the nations out of mercy. And so our job is to proclaim that gospel to the nations. That's what he's waiting for. So how will this be done? Well, if you consider what Paul's saying here in Ephesians... It's very applicable to all of us. Doing his will, walking wisely, is how his goal is accomplished. Consider this. It's not just going to missions. It's not just supporting missions. It's not just sharing the gospel with our friends and our coworkers, but recognizing that the ultimate goal is seeking to honor God with all of our lives making God-oriented decisions and not just earthly-oriented decisions. Follow me. Your, your heart for missions is seen in how you spend your free time. 
The gospel spreads primarily through the witness of the church. As unbelievers recognize that we are not of this world. We make decisions that make no sense in light of what this world prioritizes. And they see that. They see this witness. The word is marturo. This visible demonstration of death. Death to ourselves. Death to, the, death to the, what the world prioritizes. And they say, why do you do that? And not only why do you do that, why are you content? Why are you satisfied? And they ask, where is this hope within you? First Peter, right? Be ready to give a defense for anybody that asks you for the hope that is within you. They ask for the hope because they realize our hope is not in what this world thinks of as hope. Our lives prompt people to ask about our hope, or they should. And we preach the gospel. We invest in the spread of the gospel. And we show this through every opportunity. We show the way we show our death to self in the way we discipline our children, in the ways that we speak to our spouses, in the way that we in the, or in the things that we listen to on the radio, in the way we wash dishes, in the way we drive on the freeway. We walk circumspectly knowing that we are insurgents who fight a war, a war and get this by showing that we are dead to ourselves. Our weapon is the visible demonstration of our own death. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. Instead of just reading it, it's so good to see this. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. Again, this shows our weapon. The, the, if you think of us as, as insurgents in this spiritual war, preparing for our king's return, our weapon... In this war is the visible demonstration of our own death. This is what Paul says. Verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God, not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus would be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, and life is at work in you. Paul's whole point in the book of Second, well, not the whole point, but one major theme in the book of Second Corinthians is why I live the way I live. And and there's these false apostles that are saying, Paul can't be real. Look at his life. There's nothing noble about it. We're the real apostles. And Paul says that the reality of my apostleship is the fact that I'm dead to myself. And I demonstrate this again and again and again in the decisions I make. And look at the effect. Like the gospel contained in clay pots that get broken. It just, it, it, it radiates. And people see God. They see the power of the Holy Spirit. And they see the gospel and they're saved. Life is at work in that death. And so given the reality of the spiritual war we are in, Paul continues as he says, Therefore, don't be foolish. Don't be foolish. Or 
because the days of, are evil, don't be foolish or careless, not seeking the Lord's will, but walking haphazardly or naively. So this foolishness doesn't, doesn't mean imbecility or idiocy, but really just means to, to fail to make good choices, to not think through things. Spiritually speaking, we are fools when we're unaware of, this, of the real spiritual battle that's raging on around us. And we're preoccupied or oblivious to the, reali- to the reality that Satan is out there like a roaring lion seeking somewhere to, somebody to devour. We're oblivious to that. Like a family that takes a Sunday stroll through a minefield oblivious to the destruction that's there. Or we're preoccupied like a businessman that gets distracted by a phone call on his cell phone that he doesn't realize he's about to step in front of a semi-truck as he crosses the street. So distracted with this other minor issue, he misses the reality of the danger. And likewise, we can be so preoccupied with the issues of life that really don't matter. And it just distracts us so that we're not concerned with spiritual concerns. And given the reality of the evil in the world, discerning God's will should be the paramount concern. That should be always what we're seeking. Which is why Paul says, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Understand, which means bring together, not only, not only comprehending what's being said, but applying it acting upon that understanding. Comprehension that results in consequences. So the one who truly understands truth lives out that truth. It has less to do with intellect and more to do with volition. Less of the mind and more of the will. In other words, having good theology is not sufficient. We need to live good theology. Or, or better yet, our theology is really reflected in how we live, in the decisions we make. And it seems to me that this is where people usually get stuck. Often people get saved, and they're so excited, they're passionate, they, they read the Word, they, they're imbibing truth, and they, and they just they can't get enough of learning about God and, and being involved in ministry, and they devote themselves to pursuing the, world, uh, to pursuing the, the work of ministry in their lives. But over time, their knowledge stops impacting them. And it becomes almost an in in itself. And after a while, Christianity really becomes more about following traditions and structures and just being faithful to the expectations that are um, uh, expected of them in their church culture. Following responsibilities. And no longer is their goal to understand Again, understand as in live out the gospel. It may be to know more, but it's not necessarily knowledge that changes their life. So that's why he says, understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't just know it, but grasp it so that you follow it. And this is why I said earlier that wisdom is really the ability to discern God's will. And often we get so caught up when it comes to decision-making, 
We do. I mean, it's one of the most common things we say. How, I'm trying to discern the Lord's will in a situation. And that's okay because, again, God's not explicit always. And so we need wisdom. But at the same time, God has revealed his will to us. 2 Timothy 3, 15 and 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and all scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. We have everything we need in the Bible to figure out what God wants us to do. It's his perfect revelation. But how do we then discern his will for the uh, not explicit things? How, how do we bridge that gap? We, we know God's given us his will, but then again, it doesn't make it explicit for every decision. How do we bridge that gap? Um, here's my thoughts. Um, so take, take them or leave them. Um, but this is what I thought through. As, I, as I've thought, how, how have I sought to figure out God's will in challenging situations that have come across my path. I think the first thing we need to do, obviously, is to read the Word. Read the Bible. I mean, that, that's fundamental, because that's what has been given to us, and we're not going to be able to make any good decision if we don't know what the Bible says. And the more thoroughly we know it, obviously, the more readily we will, we will be able to obey it. I think, secondly, watch the lives of other people, or even read about other people, other Christians and, and, and see the effects of their life, the effects of their decisions. Learn about those good and negative consequences. I think thirdly, consider the choices that Jesus made. He is our example. Consider what he decided. Fourthly, ask yourself, what is the driving decision? What, or what is, yeah, what is driving this decision, I should say? Is it pleasure is it avoiding pain, uh, avoiding pain, or is it pleasing Christ? Is it loving people, or is it loving ourselves? What's driving it? And just being aware of what your inclinations are in that. Prayer, and I don't, uh, typically we'll say, okay, uh, an issue, a challenging situation, we'll say, okay, let's pray about it. But there's often not a context, okay, what, what does that look like, praying about a situation? Well, I th- the aim of prayer is to, d- is to get our hearts in line with God's will. And so it's, it's pouring out our hearts. God, this is what I'm thinking. This is what I'm feeling. And think and processing through that, how does it line up with God's word? It's pouring out our hearts to God. And then as we pour out our hearts, be thinking, does this line up with what God's word has told me? Sixthly, consider your desires. But be careful with this one. Right? Because our desires can be deceitful. We can often desire something for worldly ends, for evil ends, selfish ends. But at the same time, our desires may be the way the Lord's directing us towards something. Also consider what opportunities are available, what open doors. Consider what resources you have when trying to make a decision. We come now to verse 18 where Paul gives the second command, which is really, again, a continuation of the command to walk wisely. He says, Do not get drunk with wine, which is debauchery, but be filled by the Spirit. 
And notice before giving the positive command, be filled with the spirit, spirit, he gives a negative command. Don't get drunk with wine. The word for wine, very common word in the New Testament for wine. It's the word for table wine. It's the same stuff Jesus passed out to his disciples the night before he was betrayed. And so Paul is not regulating against drinking wine per se. But he's warning the believers about the consequences of drinking wine. Namely, drunkenness. Now think, why would drunkenness be a problem for a believer who's trying to walk wisely? It's the same reason it would be a problem for a school bus driver to get drunk. Or a Navy SEAL to get drunk when he's on a campaign. Or a surgeon to get drunk right before he's doing surgery going to make bad choices and end up hurting other people, not only himself. He says drunkenness is dissipation, or in other words, debauchery. And the, the, the word is essentially the person whose life is out of control. They don't make good decisions. It refers to people who's, who waste their resources in order, in order to gratify their flesh, their desires. So the point about drinking not drinking alcohol, is, is that it numbs the wits. It prevents people from making good choices or walking wisely. But given the principle, let's not limit that warning to drunkenness. Again, the exhortation is be able to make good choices, so do not be drunk with wine, you, so you can make good choices. You're not numbing your wits in decision-making so that you can walk wisely. So let's not limit it to warning, uh, a warning of drunkenness, but also think about other things that have similar effects on our thinking, that numb our wits in decision-making. The internet, social networks, malls, advertisements, even friends, work, television, or just busyness. That's maybe one of the most tempting because it seems so noble to be busy, especially in all culture. And yet, how is it is to be driven by the tyranny of the urgent? We make decisions based upon what I need to get done, and often that's not what you really need to get done. So just like drinking too much alcohol, anything that we do that dulls our senses to the spiritual war needs to be avoided. And so he says, instead of having our senses numb, be filled with the Spirit. So the wise walk is characterized by being under the Spirit's control. We are to be controlled by the Spirit versus being out of control due to the effects of wine. So believers are given all the power they need to be able to fulfill God's will. That's the point. If you're filled with the Spirit, the Spirit's empowering you, you can do these things. So discern what it is that you need to do and then be filled with the Spirit and do it. The Spirit-empowered one, he continues, is the one who speaks to one another in song. They sing with their hearts. They thank God, and they submit. The Spirit-empowered believer is the one that reflects that in the decisions they make. And so Paul gives that list of things after that. Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts, giving thanks, and then submitting. 
The first thing he mentions is addressing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. And there's a lot written on how do you distinguish what each of these is, but essentially it's just spiritual songs, different kinds of spiritual songs. We have hymns, we have psalms, we have you know, Christian music, and, and Paul's just giving everything. It's, it's Christian music. Address one another in that. And, I, and, it, and it's, a, it's an interesting word that he uses, some people have translated addressing, some people have used it speaking, some people have said it's it translated singing, and really the idea is either in words or in actual song, so speaking the lyrics of a song or actually singing songs to one another, do so. Remind one another of what is true. See, in the, in the early church, they didn't have Bibles like we have, and so they often taught doctrine by means of songs. And you have uh, uh, some of those spiritual hymns actually in Scripture. An easy one to point to is verse 14, 514. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Most scholars believe that is a Christian song. And, and that's probably how a lot of people were taught. It was a pedagogical tool for people to learn doctrine because they didn't just have Bibles. And so they would be taught doctrine and then also given um, taught songs to help remember that doctrine. Similarly, uh, uh, John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, a lot of people don't know that he, bas- he wrote a hymn after every sermon that he wrote in order to put the truth of that sermon into song. And Amazing Grace is just one of those. Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken is another one. He wrote tons and tons of hymns, but it's in order to help the congregation remember the truths and let the, 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 to give kind of a life to the doctrine that he had taught in that sermon. And so he calls us, Paul calls us to uh, speak to one of those psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. But he goes beyond that and he says, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart. Literally, this verse is say, it says, singing and psalming in your hearts to the Lord. And the point being, sing from your heart. When you sing, sing from your heart. That's, that's the aim. The person who's filled with the Spirit sings from their heart. They want to sing because they long to express what the Spirit is doing in their heart. And so, from the heart, they sing. Now, let me clarify here. That doesn't always mean that what they sing is going to be a joyful expression. It could be a lament because they might not feel joyful. And in fact, if you're a believer living in this life, mostly, or at least often, it's going to be a lament in your heart. Because although the king reigns, we live in a corrupted world and we sin on top of that. We feel most connected in worship when the songs we're singing are reflective of what's going on in our hearts. And, and so when there are songs that we just, we just love, it's because we, we recognize that's true. That is true with what I feel. That's true of what I've been thinking about. That's true with what the Lord has been doing in my heart recently. And often maybe you'll hear a sermon or you'll be meditating on a passage you know, for, for your community group or, or just for your own study and a song comes to mind that's just, that captures what this is all about and you want to sing. That's what Paul's talking about. Learn Christian songs 
so that you can actually, you can, you can express what the Lord's doing in your hearts. God has given a song to express our hearts. And it could be a joyful expression or it could be just an expression of pain. And we got examples of both in Scripture. I think of, I think it's Psalm 86, which there's just no light point in it. Should, just to make sure I'm right, look to it. No, it's Psalm 88. Psalm 88. I mean, it's just dark. But it's a psalm. And the person who wrote it, if you know, is Heman the Ezraite. It's a psalm, a psalm of the sons of Korah written by Heman the Ezraite. Well, if you look, the next psalm over is written by the same man. And it's, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. So the same guy says, I love my God. And the previous psalm, it's, there's, there doesn't seem to be any good. It's just pain. And the sons of Korah, same thing. Psalm 84, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, it faints for the courts of the Lord. And then, and then they're singing Psalm 88. The songs we sing don't always correspond to what's going in our heart. But what I want to, to point to is what's interesting in Ephesians is it's not the song that prompts the singing. It's the work of the Spirit in the heart that prompts the singing. It's be filled in the Spirit singing. It's the Spirit. See, what often draws us to music is the beauty of the music. And that's not altogether bad. But when you recognize that the singing is the result of being filled in the Spirit, that it's coming from the heart, that's the draw, not the song. And so when, you, when, you're, when you're singing, let's say you just feel like this, just this song is not corresponding to what I feel. Don't check out. Because if what the, what's being said is true, what it's teaching is good, then consider it. Meditate on it, even if it doesn't strike the heart, because the truth will uh, can will impact you. So whether you feel what you're singing or not, that's okay. You know because we can't. Not every song that gets sung up here is going to correspond to whatever what's going on, and that's okay. But still, think about it. Think upon these things and sing to one another. Speak to one another in these songs. So being filled with the Spirit is seen in speaking to one another in songs and singing from the heart. Thirdly, it's in giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if we're filled with the Spirit and we recognize all that Christ has done for us, we will give thanks you know, always and for everything. For everything, always you'll be giving thanks. Using the words of Matt Redmond, we can thank God in the land that is plentiful, where streams of abundance flow, and also when we are found in the desert place, though we walk through the wilderness, we can give thanks. Or when the sun's shining down on me, when the world's all as it should be, we can give thanks, even on the road that's marked with suffering. 
though there's pain in the offering, we can give thanks. That's what it's saying. Always and for everything, we can give thanks because we know our God is good and He's in control and He loves us. So those who are filled by the Spirit give thanks and finally they submit. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The word is, it's an old military figure which basically means to line up, to get yourself in order, like for a drill. Um, it, it, it essentially means to place oneself under the leader. But note the reflexive nature. You're placing oneself. The submission is a person submitting. They are doing it themselves. They're not being forced to. And so here, submission, you'll note, is a result of being filled by the Spirit. So it's not the result of oppression any more than singing songs or giving thanks is oppression. It's the result of being filled with the Spirit. The the person filled with the Spirit submits to their leaders. So when he calls us to submit to one another, this is to be done volitionally as an aspect of honoring Christ. So how are we submit to one another? So if everybody's submitting, you might ask, who's leading? How can two people mutually submit to one another? I think the best way to understand this is that you need to submit to the person who's an authority over you. So citizens need to submit to kings or governing officials or the magistrates. Employees need to submit to bosses. Wives need to submit to husbands. Children to parents. Students to teachers. Privates to their sergeants. Church members to elders. Engineers to program managers. If there's someone in authority over you, submit to them. I think the idea is go out of your way to express eagerness in submitting. Let that person in authority know that you will support and follow them, barring that, that you, they ask you to do something that's wrong. So this doesn't mean that you're not to express disagreement with their opinions, but if you do, you will bend your desires to follow them even if you do disagree. That you're committed to follow them, barring they're asking you to do something sinful. And consider, to live like that in this culture will be shocking. Because that just doesn't happen. And notice what prompts this submission to one another. Out of reverence for Christ. The word for reverence is the word phobos. Fear. Out of fear. It carries a sense of having reverence and respect for one authority, but it still means fear. Now, it's not fear in the sense of you're afraid of a terrorist with a machete or afraid of the dark. It's not that kind of fear. It's more like the fear of uh, a, a police officer pulling you over for speeding or uh, the fear of getting fired by your boss. It's the fear of one in authority, that they have the authority to bring consequences for your disobedience the fear of rebuke or punishment. We fear Christ because he's the ultimate leader and he has the ultimate power of destruction in his fingers. And we know that one day we will stand before him. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what he is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Which is why if we understand that Christ knows all and sees all, and that he is the one that's going to judge us. 
we're going to live in submission to those whom he has appointed in authority over us. I want to, I know we're running out of time, but I, I want to uh, conclude this sermon on that point. And my point in sharing this story is to let you know how difficult personally submission can be. Um, and I, they're somewhat hesitant uh, because I know anytime somebody shares a personal story, especially if they're preaching, it's like um, you never want to listen to somebody who's, a, who's the hero of their own story. But I don't share it so much for that as much to share I know what it's like to have to submit to people that are unreasonable. And how hard it is. After graduating from seminary, um, a lot of people ask, for instance, well, how is it, why is it that you're teaching full-time? Um, this is the answer. Uh, after graduating from seminary, uh, I've been teaching for the last six years. And, when, and the reason is, essentially, is when I was in seminary, I served at a small cross-cultural church in Southern California. Uh, it was a church plant, and I did so because I wanted our aim, Julius and my aim, was to be missionaries, particularly in Mexico. And when I graduated, I met with the leaders of that church in order to find out, okay, what's the next step here? And they told me that they were not going to affirm me to go into full-time ministry, and instead they instructed me to just get a job in the area and be a, a lay person at the church. And so when I asked, well, what is the issue? Why don't, you, why don't you think that I'm called to ministry? They said it was pride. And they said in particular it was self-will. And when I said, well, how do you see that? Because I was concerned. What, what are you seeing in my life that I need to address? And they said, because you think you're called to full-time ministry, and we're your elders, and we haven't told you that, that's your idea, not ours. You're being driven by what you want, not what we want as a church. And so I took that, and um, I sought counsel outside that. I went to a number of other seminary professors, former pastors, peers, people that knew me, just to get wisdom. What, what do, you, do you guys see? What do I do in this situation? And to a man, every single one of those people I talked to said, it just looks like it's just not a, a situation that's going to work out. And in fact, that very next day after that conversation, I had two pastors offer me positions at their church as associate pastors to work alongside them. And I thought, that's great. God's confirming his will. And so I approached the senior pastor and I said, let's get together and dinner. And I was just going to tell him, God just worked all this out. It's great. And when I shared what had happened, he was, he was very upset that I had talking of talking about uh, spoke about this issue with other people i'd gotten counsel he said that's he, he he took that as trying to usurp the leadership of the elders and um he said that entertaining any thoughts to go serve in another church were just indicative of what they were saying it's i'm being self-willed and so the elder's position was that if I were to go into any other ministry, I would be disobeying them and not submitting to their counsel. And so, therefore, affirming that I was a self-willed man and therefore disqualified from ministry based upon Titus chapter 1. And so, I had to process through that. Um, and after considering the situation prayer, I decided to stay. Even though I disagreed with a lot of the logic and the decisions of the church leadership, they were still 
my authority. And um, I thought, I, b- I believed God would be more glorified in my trusting my future to him than pursuing that which I desired, it was an all-consuming desire in my heart, and um, decided to just look at other positions. And with just a BA and a, in history and an MDiv, there wasn't a whole lot available. And, uh, but I did seek for teaching positions, and for six months, we just couldn't, we couldn't find anything in Southern California. And so we thought, all right, let's, let's look outside. I, I got to provide for my family. We uh, uh, sent out applications to some schools in the Northwest and within a week got offered a position at the church, or sorry, the school that I'm still teaching at. So that's why I've been teaching for six years. And it's just been a sense of we're just, we'll see what the Lord has for us from then. And many times I've wondered was that, the wise, was that a wise decision to give up full-time ministry? Especially when my, my close friends have been affirmed. Some of them have been sent to mission fields that I've desired to go to. Um, they've had other prestigious positions op, uh, open up to them. And I'd ask, was, was it wise? Especially when it's, it's been hard six years um, in transition for us. And it... Again, it goes back to, it, it depends on what one thing is. And, um, and it's so good to be able to say that because uh, six years later, we can see God's goodness in so many details of where we're, we're even at now. And so I can share more of that, but I've taken enough of your time. So let's, let's pray together and, and ask for the Lord's favor in our lives. God, give us help to walk wisely. Give us aid. Give us assistance. You've, you've given us your word and help us to bridge the gap between what we know is true in order to understand it and make choices that reflect what your word says. God, I pray for grace and truth that you would make us a wise people and that we would live for you and not, not pursue the wisdom of the world and all of its trappings and attractions, and even make hard choices, painful choices, but choices that reflect that you are a treasure, you are one desire. Lord, I pray that you would bless this church in, in, in uh, giving them wisdom, giving each individual member wisdom to know how to shepherd their families, how to love their spouses, how to care for their kids, how to serve their coworkers so that you would be brought glory and that the gospel would be proclaimed uh, in this community and through the world. We ask this in Christ's name.